Well, good morning, St. Paul's. I hope you all are well. Uh, welcome to our live stream service, our 13th live stream service. Well, this has been another uh, emotional and heavy week in America, hasn't it? Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I have been trying to process all of it and it's hard. Uh, I, I feel a tiredness and it's not the kind of tiredness that comes from applying yourself to a particular task and then being able to look at the fruit of your labor. Uh, it's um, the kind of tiredness that comes from just feeling a lot of emotions, um, being exposed to other people's emotions, um, being exposed to others' pain, the kind of tiredness that comes from talking about heavy issues like issues of race and, and justice, um, the kind of tiredness that comes from trying to sift through information and distinguish correct information from misinformation, um, the kind of tiredness that comes from seeing images of violence and destruction, uh, the kind of tiredness that comes from seeing people argue, um, the kind of tiredness that comes from um, probably drinking too much from the well of the 24 hour news cycle, you know, always feeling this need to, um, to, to sort through uh, everything that's going on. So all of that has definitely made me feel tired, emotionally tired, mentally tired. Maybe it's made you feel uh, tired too. But you know, I think it's okay to feel some of that tiredness uh, because the reality is that there are many people in America who are also tired. And uh, that's, that's why this is happening. Uh, they are tired of feeling lesser than uh, tired of feeling fearful, tired of feeling unheard, and they haven't just felt that way for the last couple of weeks. They've felt that way for a very long time. And so I think it's okay for people like me to share the burden of that tiredness a little bit. I feel like the best thing that we can do with our tiredness, if we're feeling that way, is lament. The Bible has a long tradition of lament. In fact, there's one whole book in the Bible that's just called Lamentations. And what a lament is, is it's a prayer that's an expression of tiredness, of sorrow, of longing for the world to be different than it is. And uh, sometimes the best response to events in the world and in our lives isn't really to try and explain them or, or defend them or, um, you know, come up with some clever insight about them. Sometimes the best response is just to express prayerfully that, that sorrow. And so uh, I, I've written a lament uh, inspired by the last 13 days. I don't claim that it's anything special, but um, I, I wrote it down because it was what I felt like lamenting about. And um, I've written it with the pronouns we instead of I, because I'm hopeful that you 
will feel like you could say this with me, this, this lament. Um, so I'm going to read it now. And I hope that it expresses your heart as it does mine. <clears throat> Lord, this morning we lament. We lament our country's history of racism, of slavery and Jim Crow laws, laws so recent in our history that many of us alive today can still remember them. Laws that deprive black men and women of wealth and equality and dignity. Lord, we lament all the ways known and unknown that the effects of those laws echo in our society today. And we lament the sinful attitudes of the heart that created those laws, that justified those laws, and that continue to operate today, even in the absence of those laws. Lord, we lament the sinful attitudes that form the seeds of racism, judgmentalism, fear, the love of money and power, and perhaps most of all, the unreflective pursuit of self-interest without consideration for anyone else. Lord, we lament the long history of churches in America that have supported and defended racist ideologies and policies or have just turned and looked the other way. And we lament any ways known or unknown that we ourselves may have contributed to racial divide whether by hostility or by ignorance. Lord, we lament the death of George Floyd and the pain that his death has surfaced in millions of black Americans. We lament violence, violence against protesters, violence against bystanders, violence against police, violence against businesses and property we lament misinformation and propaganda that obscures the truth and that increases our division. Lord, we lament our tendency to reinforce whatever narrative we prefer, even if millions of people try to tell us a different story. We lament radical ideologies that refuse to see the humanity in their enemies and that command retribution and revenge. We lament the long history of white people being unwilling to listen to the pain of black people and to take it seriously. We lament sin, which affects every one of us, for we all like sheep have gone astray. We lament the brokenness of the world and the part that we've all played in it. And we lament our slowness to repent to confess and to trust in you. Have mercy on us, Lord. Teach us to love our neighbors. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Amen. Well, if you saw the What's Happening email this week, you know that uh, we're going to get to hear from someone other than me uh, today. It's actually been quite a while since that, that's happened. Um, and so this morning, I am happy to introduce uh, Mike DiStefano. 
Uh, Mike has visited St. Paul's Church before. Uh, he spoke a little bit. I don't, he didn't give an entire sermon, but he has spoken before. And uh, Mike is someone that I knew uh, from Gordon Conwell Seminary. Uh, we were there for a little while at the same time. Uh, he was a Gordon Conwell graduate with a Master of Divinity. And uh, he is on staff with the Amira House, which St. Paul's partners with. Uh, Amira is an organization uh, that builds uh, safe houses for women who are escaping human trafficking. So welcome, Mike. Yeah, thanks so much, Ryan. Uh, it's great to be with you guys and join as the first virtual guest preacher. Uh, we're making history this morning. It's pretty exciting. Uh, and just hi to all of you. Uh, I have been to St. Paul. Some of you may remember that I came and presented on Amira, the realities of human trafficking uh, several months ago. And so I do know some of your faces and I've gotten to know uh, Jana a little bit um, through the work that she's helped to lead at Amira. And, um, and so it's just wonderful to get to jump back in and be with you guys virtually here in this space. And, uh, and I'm thrilled to get to join you today. And speaking of Jana, I, um, I, was, I had Facebook open so that I could worship this morning and keep track with where the service was and the, the flow of things. And I clicked the wrong worship service. So I was watching, I think, last week's worship service. So I'm pretty sure you guys worshiped with Stephen this morning, but I worshiped with Jana from last week. And I think it was exactly what I needed for today. But I'm glad that I figured out my error before I was um, uh, not on track and on pace with the rest of the church. So Jana, thank you for leading me. And I need the every hour. Um, it was such a, a, an appropriate uh, hymn for me this morning um, as I uh, worshiped alongside. And I'm excited to get to jump in and join you guys with the opening of the word today. And I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Ryan. Uh, it goes without saying, you know this, but you have an amazing pastor. I was so blown away by his leadership when I attended St. Paul's. I love the way that he helps people to connect with God, not only with sharp sermons and uh, mental fortitude, but with the connection of the heart and the emphasis on communion. And, uh, and I think it's pretty cool because like Ryan mentioned, I knew we knew each other a bit in seminary and we overlapped a bit. And my impression of Ryan from seminary was um, I remember him sitting long and often in the cafeteria and he would just sit with people and listen. He was one of the best listeners that people would pour out their stories or share their ideas. And, uh, he was just there to sort of connect with people. And I just remember this authentic sort of, um, aura around Ryan. And I'm just so grateful for, uh, the fact that the Lord is using the gifts that he's given him. Uh, to get to pastor this church. And I'm uh, just so thrilled to get to jump in with you guys. And I was uh, tuning into the live stream and uh, it was a little bit behind once I actually got back on track with this week's live stream and not last week's live stream. And Ryan was still in the middle of his lament when I popped up and then he was introducing me because I was delayed. Um, but I just thought that was such a beautiful lament and prayer. And thank you for leading us in that um, to understand the realities of what we're dealing with in this world and how we might uh, pour out our voice uh, to God and let him be our refresher, uh, that he often meets us in the wilderness, that he lets us feel our helplessness and our hopelessness aside from him so that he might um, point us back to his strength, that we might uh, move with him as he moves within this world. And so with that, uh, I just want to say a, a quick thank you again for letting me join you. And then I want to jump into the word of God this morning with you. 
Uh, and so the passage that we're going to be in this morning as we take a break from your reg regularly scheduled programming is Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible in front of you or you have a cell phone with access to the internet, you can pull up Acts chapter 1 uh, and look up verse 1 and we'll start reading there. So uh, as you flip to it, I'll begin reading. We'll pray and then we'll jump into what God has for us this morning. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And um, we'll read it and we'll pray together. So Acts 1 says this. And the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while they were staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you will come in the same way that you saw him go. Let's pray and then jump into this together. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to be together, although we're apart physically. Thank you for an opportunity to dive into your word, the great unifier, the great motivator, uh, the great renovator of our hearts. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would do those things in us this morning, that as we think about the chaos of the world around us, and we think about some of the difficulties that we face in our home, and then we contrast that with the beauties that we see and the beauties of our home, whether that be in solitude with you, whether that be surrounded by family members. God, we just recognize that there's a dichotomy in this world, that there's beauty in the broken and that there's difficulty surrounded by um, that which is good. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to make sense of that this morning, that you would give us direction, insight. Lord, we know that your word has the potential to break every hard heart. And so for those of us that have hard hearts that are seeking you this morning, God, we, we just humbly say, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. And we know that your word has the capacity to heal every broken heart. And so for those of us that are coming into this morning in this moment with broken hearts, or those of us that will have our hearts broken by your word, we pray that you would not leave us there, but that you would bind up and heal. Lord, only you can do that. Only your word has the power to do that. And so, Lord, this is so beyond a person preaching a text or a community gathering via technology. This is about people meeting with their creator. And so, Lord, would you meet with us? Would you reveal yourself to us in a special and unique way in this short time that we have together? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning's sermon with a confession, and that is, and I wish I could see your faces for this, but the confession that I have this morning is that I've never seen the movie Princess Bride. 
I've never seen the movie Princess Bride. And when I say that, inevitably people lose their minds because they cannot conceive of a reality where someone has lived for 31 years and not seen what they consider to be the best movie of all time. Uh, and it's kind of a funny uh, interaction when that comes up because it's one of the most beloved and quotable movies ever made. And so I'll hear quotes from it all the time in random conversations or among friends, they'll say marriage and they all laugh and I don't get it. Uh, or they'll say, I know my Wesley will come for me and I've heard that over and over again, but I don't know who Wesley is or who he's coming for. And the reason why I don't understand what's happening in those moments is because we need story to construct meaning. Without story, sentences are just random. Uh, we need story to construct meaning. So I remember when Ryan and I were at Gordon Conwell, I read a philosopher by the name of Alistair McIntyre, and he said, imagine this scenario. He says, imagine you're standing outside of a gas station and you've got your hands in your pockets and a man walks up to you, he leans in close, and he says, the name for the common wild duck is Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus. What do you do with that information? What's your next move? Right. The answer is, it depends. It depends entirely on the context, on the story. One possible scenario, one possible context in which that man approached you is that um, he is a case of mistaken identity. So maybe he's a professor at a university. He teaches a, a course on uh, nature. And so a student asked him a question, what's the name for the common wild duck? He sees you, thinks you're that student, walks up and he's like, oh, hey, George, the name for the common wild duck is Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus. And if that was the case and he mistook your identity, that's kind of funny, right? Uh, or another possible scenario is that he's crazy. He's just batty. Uh, he doesn't understand reality. He's just saying things. He's going around saying nonsense, right? The third possible scenario or another possible scenario is that it's a mission. He's a spy. And he's walking up to you at the appropriate rendezvous point, and he's speaking the words that enact the code that, in, that the mission ensues. And, and um, that story is rather dramatic, right? And yet, how we respond to the exact same sentence will depend entirely upon the, the context in which it's surrounded. And so we need story to construct meaning. Uh, if we misunderstand the context, we will misappropriate the response. If we misunderstand the context in which we're living, we will misappropriate the proper response. And the result of that can be disastrous. So an example of that would be my uh, freshman year of college. Uh, and I know this is a collegiate, St. Paul's Collegiate Church. I know there's a lot of UConn students and maybe some of you can identify with this uh, story. My freshman year of college is my first college girlfriend. And I didn't really know how to have a college girlfriend. I didn't know if it was the same thing as having a girlfriend in high school. I was really a little bit shy and I wasn't sure exactly what her. And so we had gone out a couple times and I didn't really know what to do next. And so my sister, who was a senior in college, said, look, I just started dating somebody as well. And I know yours is fresh and new and mine is fresh and new. So what if we like sort of had each other to navigate this together? And so I'll make dinner at my house or my apartment and you bring her over and we'll do a double date and that'll be fun. And, uh, and I thought, that's great. I don't have any plans. I don't know. I'm 18 years old. I don't know how to treat a girl. And so uh, we went over to her apartment. She made dinner. We had a great time. Uh, after dinner, we're all sitting on the couch and we're having conversations, trying to keep it lively. Uh, and then we quickly approached that moment in the night where we had all run out of our A-game conversation. 
Like the things that are our normal go-tos, our funniest stories, our best quotes, the things that we thought made us look smart, it was all gone and it was getting quiet and I would do anything to avoid that awkward silence that I knew was impending. And so at that moment where I felt the conversation potentially dying down, I saw a commercial on TV that I thought was funny. And so I said, everybody shut up and listen, this is my favorite commercial. And as soon as everybody stopped talking and paid attention, the man on the TV said, if you have a, and it was a Viagra commercial, and, uh, and this man just spoke unspeakable things into our date, right? And, and for me in that moment, I was like, no, right? Because this is my sister and my brand new girlfriend, and now this is Mike's favorite commercial. Now, what went wrong in that scenario? What went wrong? I misunderstood the context. And so I misappropriated my response. We need story to construct meaning. And if we misunderstand the context, we will misappropriate our response. And so I mentioned that because we're in the middle of a story currently. There's tons of facts out there. There's people who are vying for our attention. Uh, we have dreams, goals, and desires within our own hearts. And we're asking the question, how do we be faithful in these days? What is faithfulness as a believer or as a follower of Jesus or simply as a human being? What does faithfulness look like? How do I respond? How do I think? How do I feel? How do I live? And we're asking these questions of what does faithfulness look like? And my, my hope for us this morning as we gather is that, um, that we'll understand the story. We'll understand the context. Because the reality is if we misunderstand the context, if we don't know the story that we're living in, we will misappropriate our response. It's impossible to respond correctly if we don't understand the context in which we live. And so I want to give us that story. I want to frame out our reality this morning as we gather in these short moments together. And the way that I want to answer that question, what story are we living in, is I want to go to the passage that we read in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and help that to frame the reality in which we live. What's the story that we're living in? Uh, well, the passage that we read, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, is a passage that's commonly referred to as the Ascension. You might have heard this passage preached on Ascension Sunday if you grew up in a liturgical or more traditional style church. It's the Ascension. It's the moment when Jesus ascends into heaven. And it's a fascinating moment because Jesus' entire life and earthly ministry are complete. All of his radical teachings, his amazing healings, his compassion, his humanity, his death and burial, and his resurrection, the fact that he died for our sins and was buried in the grave and wrestled the, the sins of the world and then rose victorious over them. All of that great story, that story that echoes throughout the ages, that's all behind him. And now Jesus has risen from the grave and he's standing in front of the disciples and he has one final conversation with them before he ascends into heaven. And it's a really amazing moment. Um, I imagine that you might be mildly interested in what I have to say this morning. You don't really know me. You don't know a ton of my story. Uh, you don't understand why you need to trust me. Um, but I imagine if you knew that, that me, that, that Mike, if, if you knew that I had just died, was buried, and three days later rose victoriously over the grave by the power of God and by the authority of his spirit to rule the world forever, you might pay a little bit closer attention to what I had to say this morning. This was my final words to you. <laughs> and that's this moment. So Jesus has one final opportunity to speak with his disciples face to face. 
with the men and the women that had been walking with him through the course of his ministry. And he looks at his friends, his companions that wept when he was crucified and rejoiced when he was risen. And he has one final thing to say to them. And Jesus looks at them and he says, go to Jerusalem. There you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so these are the final words of the risen Christ before he ascends into heaven. He says, go to Jerusalem. There you'll receive power because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then it says, as they were looking on, he was lifted up out of their sight, literally begins to ascend into heaven. And then a cloud takes him out of their sight. And the disciples, understandably, are stupefied. <laughs> They're probably staring, mouths open into heaven, as they recognize that this Jesus is now ascending to the right hand of God. He's seated with authority. And now all rule and dominion over this world are his. The man that we walked with, that we slept near, whose teaching we heard, who we saw reach out and touch and heal, he we now recognize fully and completely is God. He is king over the universe. And they're standing there with their mouths open in stupefied amazement. And we have no idea how long the disciples stood there, mouths open, gazing into heaven, but we know it was long enough for God to send an angel, right? Did you notice that in the passage? God sends an angel and he says, hey, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This Jesus who you saw go will return. He's coming back. And so don't just gaze into heaven. Why do you stand gazing into heaven? Rather, do what he said, go to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you'll receive power and you're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now why mention that? Why bring us to this story? Because I think there's an important truth that's embedded within, and it's this. That as disciples of Jesus, we were never meant to simply gaze into heaven. As disciples of Jesus, we were never meant to simply gaze into heaven. We were meant to move with God as he moves in this world. That the joy of, of knowing Jesus, the, the joy of being a Christian, the joy of being a disciple, is that we were meant to move with God as he moves on this earth. And that's an important point because as we're thinking about our story and we're asking the question, what does it look like to be faithful? We need to recognize this reality that faithfulness for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus is not simply a gazing into heaven. It's a movement. There's action. There's purpose to this pursuit. And so I think that's important because as we look around at our world currently, we see brokenness, we see difficulty, and we see that in so many places, um, we have lost some credibility as Christians and as the people of God. And it takes humility to admit that. And it's painful to admit that. But I am uh, currently discipling a young man who's a 24-year-old African-American uh, who's attending Gordon-Conwell and ministering in New England in Connecticut at Fairfield University. And he asked, would you just disciple me in the way of Jesus? I, you've been around a little bit longer than me and you've already graduated from seminary. Would you spend some time pouring into me? And this last week, we've been kept keeping up almost daily and talking on the phone and just catching up over Zoom. And I've just been asking him how he's doing. And shortly after um, uh, some of the, the most recent events, he said, you know, it's been incredibly difficult because I'm looking around and I'm seeing so many people of color, friends of mine who look like me, who are walking away from the faith. 
And he said, for me, it's just so hard because I don't know how to process my, my negative emotions, the bad things that I feel inside of me, the frustrations, the sadness. What, what do I do with that? What, how do I take that? And I think that the, the reality that we need to recognize in this moment is that as Christians, we were meant to, to be movers. We're meant to be present in society. We're meant to be active with our God. And yet the world is looking around and they're saying, where are the believers in a moment like this? Who will identify with the lost and the lonely? Who will identify with those who have been historically oppressed? And I was watching a documentary this week about James Baldwin, and it was so fascinating because he was alive during the 1960s civil rights movement. And he, he makes this statement at the beginning. He says, I was a witness to the civil rights. I wasn't a real active participant. I was an author. And so I would write down what I saw. And I saw Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King. I saw Malcolm X. And I saw these people. And he says, but me, I kind of stayed out of it. And he said, um, he said, I didn't join, um, I didn't become a, a member of the Black Panther Party because I didn't want to believe that all white people were demons. And I didn't want young black children to grow up believing that either. And I didn't become a, um, a black Muslim for a similar reason. And then he said, and I didn't join the Christian church because they have neither heard nor followed the command that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And what was so fascinating about that statement to me is that he didn't reject Christianity based on its premise. He rejected it based on the lack of follow through, the lack of action. They have neither heard nor followed the command to love your neighbor, even as you love yourself. And I think that that's a problem for us in the church today that we need to recognize that we were never meant to simply gather and gaze. We were meant to be active, move on this earth. We were meant to move with God as he moves in this world. And so example, just after I graduated from college, I have an uncle who we call the fun man in our family. He has climbed a mountain on almost every continent on the globe. He's got a surf shack in Baja, Mexico, where he'll go spend weeks just surfing. He's won surf competitions. He's got a place where we can go snowboarding near Lake Tahoe and Squaw Valley. And, uh, and he was single till he was about 40. He's got a big beard. He's just, the man is a living North Face ad. That's my uncle. Uh, he was single till he was 40, successful in business. So he was able to afford all those things. Just after I graduated college, he said, congratulations. As a graduation present, why don't you come and spend a week with me uh, out in California? Just come spend some time, hang out, and let's, let's uh, have a fun vacation together. And I said, thank you so much, uncle. I would love to. Um, but I just started in the ministry. I'm in my early 20s. And if you didn't know, if you're, in your if you're in your early 20s and in ministry, they pay on average $1 a year. That's about the average salary that you make in your early 20s in ministry. And so I said, I would love to, but I can't really afford it. And he said, look, I'll tell you what, you pay for your plane ticket. And then when you get here, I'll cover everything else. You're covered. Just get here. And I said, deal. So I bought a plane ticket. I flew to California. I walked into his tiny little multi-million dollar home. And it was incredible because my uncle, who is the fun man, who was this sort of wild and crazy guy had gotten married and had a little girl. And so now I got to see what does a North Face ad look like as a father. And I got to watch him parent his little girl and his home was incredible. It was tucked into the hills of Santa Cruz. He had heated bathroom floors and it was amazing. But our entire vacation didn't consist of time in his home because my uncle's the fun man. And so day one, he comes into the living room, bounds in and he's like, hey, I've got mountain bikes. Let's go mountain biking. And I said, deal, because I thought I was a mountain biker. I'm from Texas. It turns out we don't have mountain biking in Texas. We have trail riding. And I got to actually go mountain biking for the first time. 
And it was amazing. But our vacation didn't stop there. The next day he walked in and he said, let's go surfing. And it was just a few days before Christmas. And so we were two of the only people insane enough to get in the Pacific Ocean on December 22nd and go surfing. But it was incredible. I'll never forget paddling out into the deep blue of the ocean and seeing the waves sort of roll underneath and the, the quaint green hills of Santa Cruz uh, tucked in behind as the waves beat up against the cliffs behind me. And, uh, and my uncle paddling over to me and saying, see this, this is my sanctuary. And the next day was Sunday and he said, uh, let's go to church, which was fascinating because my uncle's an atheist. And yet he had had a little girl and he was asking spiritual questions. And so he wanted to go experience spiritual things. So we went to church together. And the pastor of the church uh, was one of his surfer buddies. That's how he knew about it. And so the pastor of the church, I remember we got there and we're meeting in a like elementary school cafeteria and they're really worshiping and going for it. And um, the, as the music dies down, the pastor walks out, who is my uncle's surfer buddy, and he's got hair like Pastor Ryan Spooner coming, you know, flowing down to his shoulders. And yet it's all blonde and he's real casual and he walks out with sort of like a surfer swag and he says as the music dies down let's everyone just take a moment and think about how gnarly god is right and i looked up to laugh because i thought he was joking but nobody was laughing they were all just like totally right like that was just such a normal sentence for them uh, and then the next day we went from that church service experience and we went snowboarding uh, and it was the craziest vacation of my life. We were mountain biking. We're going to church. We're surfing. We're going snowboarding. We're in the ocean one day and in the snow in the mountains the next day. And it was the craziest vacation that I've ever taken. And so when I got home, people were asking, how is California? And I was like, I didn't even have the words. I was like, it was the coolest vacation of my life. I can't even explain it to you. We were surfing one day and then I was going over jumps on a mountain the next day. And it was wild. And I mentioned that story. I bring that up for this reason. Imagine if every time my uncle came into a room with a board or a bike or an adventure and he said, hey, Mike, come ride with me. Come on this adventure with me. Come roll with me. If every time he invited me into that with him, I said, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm fine here. The, the bathroom floors are heated. I'm going to hang in the house. Imagine how different my response would have been to that question. How was your time in California? It was fine. It's okay. It was, it was cool. I got to watch my uncle, you know, be a father. And that was, that was neat. That was different. And I mentioned that because the tragedy of that is I never would have really gotten to know my uncle, right? Because if you want to get to know my uncle, you got to move with him because that's who he is. That's how he's wired. If you want to get to know the character of my uncle, you've got to get on a board and go ride with him. And it's the same thing with our God. If you really want to get to know God, You've got to move with him because our God is on the move. He is active in this world and he is moving towards those who are lost. He is moving towards those who are hurting. He is moving towards those who have been oppressed and he is calling his people to move with him. And I think the great danger is that so many of us have spent our entire lives in the house of God, learning things about God, but we've never really gotten to know God as a person because we've never really moved with him. And there is a danger in knowing things about God and not really knowing God. And so the Christian life was meant to be gazing into heaven, stupefied, in awe, in amazement of the wonderful cross and resurrection and divinity of Jesus. 
but then it was meant to be a movement into the world, that we're meant to follow this rhythm of worshiping, gazing into heaven, studying the things of God, getting to know him for who he is, doing Bible studies, believing that he's uh, meeting with us as we gaze into heaven, but then we're meant to move with God. So much so that if we don't, he's going to send an angel into our world to wake us up and say, hey, seriously, why are you still gazing into heaven? Go to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit's coming. You're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in the ends of the earth. And we see that in this passage. Uh, we see that just right there in chapter one, one, verse one of the book of Acts. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, Right. He says in the first book, O Theophilus, who was Theophilus and what's the first book? We see that in the first verse that the book of Acts is actually a sequel. And the only other place that we see the word Theophilus or the name Theophilus or the person Theophilus show up in our Bible is Luke chapter one, verse four, uh, where Luke says, Theophilus, I'm writing to you an account of everything I know that happened concerning the person of Jesus. And so Luke is saying in the first book, which was the gospel of Luke, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. He, all that he began to do and to teach. And that's, it's, that word began is really fascinating. Because what happened in the book of Luke? The teachings that changed the world. That have the power to break and heal a human heart. The miracles of Jesus. The gospel. His death. His burial. And his resurrection. Triumphant over the grave. And Luke says all of that was just the beginning, that he is still active, he is still at work in this world, that the gospel of Jesus was, was the match that lit the flame that will set the whole world ablaze with the glory of God, that the, the gospel of Jesus, his life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, burial, and resurrection was just the beginning. His work is continuing on this planet. And so I dealt with all that he began to do and to teach, where he appeared to them, uh, appearing to them by many proofs and and speaking of his suffering and speaking about the kingdom of God. See, in the book of Luke, the main theme of the book of Luke is this idea of the kingdom of God, that Jesus was claiming to be more than just a teacher, more than just a deity or a God among gods. He was claiming to be a king over a kingdom. And the thrust of that, the book of Luke, is that when Jesus comes, all things will be made right. All things will be made right. So there's this really fascinating moment right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and it's his first sermon as recorded by Luke, and Jesus has been gaining a following, so he's been teaching, people are following him, they're sort of interested in what he has to say, and then he goes to the Sabbath, I mean, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which was his custom, and they call him up, and they say, hey, Jesus, read from us, and, and so Jesus walks to the front, and he grabs a scroll, and he grabs the scroll of what we know is the book of Isaiah, and it says he sort of just, he flips through. And he reads this passage, and this is the first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. And do you remember what happens next? They seek to stone him. And you go, what's going on with that? Like they were just sort of interested in his teaching. They were sort of marveling at it. They asked him to come up and read. And then he reads this. And then the next response from them is anger and outrage. Um, what's that about? 
It's because when he finishes reading that passage, he says, I tell you the truth today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so in the Old Testament, the people of God had this vision. They had this promise from the book of Isaiah that one day God would return and he would be with his people. And when he came, the blind people would see, those who were oppressed would be made free, that there would be good news for the poor, that God's presence would renovate and restore and transform everything. And so Jesus walks to the front of the church and he reads that well-known passage from the book of Isaiah that promises the coming of God. He reads it and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. You knew God was coming and now you're looking at him. And so what does Jesus just claim to do? He's claimed to be God. He's claimed to be the king over a kingdom in which all things will be renovated. All sad things will come untrue. That's Jesus's claim. That's his stated goal in the world is to renovate hearts, to reconcile us with God, and then to reconcile us with each other and with this world. Jesus came to be a king over a kingdom. And that's really good news because as we've already handed on today in this moment, this world is a broken place. Relationships are shattered in families, within ourselves. We feel disintegrated. So many of us don't feel whole, even within ourselves. I was just looking up statistics, and some of you may feel the brokenness of the world just by virtue of living in it. Your experiences growing up or your day-to-day realities in your home or um, your day-to-day realities walking outside that you feel this deep brokenness, and you're like, "I I know that this world is broken because I'm living in it. And I've been a recipient of some of the hard things that can happen on this planet. And some of you look out and you see it in the news and it's just pervasive. And um, like Pastor Ryan said, that we've been drinking so deeply from the well of the world around us. And we just feel sad and we feel tired because this world is a broken place. And so I just looked it up and I saw that self-reported loneliness has risen by 20% since 2018. And that statistic was reported before isolation and the global pandemic. Um, That one in three people now in our nation have an anxiety disorder. Not just that we feel anxious sometimes, but that we have an anxiety disorder. That suicides have risen by 40% since the 1990s. That we're living in a world that is dark, that is hard, that is broken, and that is sick. And I see this day to day in the work that I do with Amira. And we look out at the world and and we say that the best estimates that we have from Homeland Security and the United Nations and the World Labor Organization is that about 40 million people are enslaved in the world today, enforced bonded labor or sex trafficking. And that's 40 million people. That's the population of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut and Rhode Island and Massachusetts, and Vermont, and New Hampshire, and Maine. 40 million people. And now imagine if that entire region was enslaved in the world today, what outcry there would be in the rest of the world to rescue and move in and to help these people escape and and be empowered and and be restored to life and healing and hope. Imagine the outcry. And yet, the reality of modern-day slavery is and modern day exploitation is it's sinister and it's happening underground and behind the scenes and it's hard to see. And we know that through our conversations with Homeland Security and others that there are an estimated 500,000 women being trafficked for sex in the United States as we speak. The average age is only maybe 14 years old. 
And, and, and that number comes from this reality of there was the use of force, fraud, or coercion. And it's the most atrocious crime that I can imagine. And it's happening every single day. And from the best estimates that we have, less than 1% of women ever escape from their trafficker. And so God looks down in Psalm 12, 5, he says, because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place him or her in the safety for which she longs. He looks around and he says, we were meant to take care of each other in families, in nations, in societies. And he says, and yet I look around and those who are most vulnerable and most needy have been plundered. And he says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place her in the safety for which she longs. God says, I'm going to make this my personal priority. I'm moving towards the broken and the hurting and the oppressed in love, and he's calling us to move with him. And that's Amira's story. Ryan said, I, he mentioned that I work for an organization called Amira. We're an anti-trafficking organization, uh, a trauma-informed aftercare service provider for survivors of human trafficking domestically, that we exist to be a safe place where women can come who have escaped, where they can be restored to wholeness, to health, to life, where we do uh, spiritual recovery and we do vocational training so they can get jobs and, and further their education. And we do trauma care uh, at the highest level. And that's our focus. And we are this place of healing and hope and life where women can come in and have a community uh, and move into an entirely new situation. And I love that because in Amira, we simply see ourselves as the people of God who will rise with God to help place these precious women in the safety that, that they long for. So we see that God is on the move towards this world. And we say, God, if you're moving, we want to move with you. We want to be a part of that. If you're moving towards the lost and the hurting and the broken, God, we want to move with you. You have not called us to simply gaze into heaven, but move to ride with you. And I, I can tell you that it is not easy. It's not easy to climb a mountain, but it's beautiful and it's worth it. And for so many of us, God is calling us and he's saying, hey, come with me. He's calling you to risk the cold danger of the mountain of mission. That as we ascend the heights and we breathe that cool mountain air, we'll feel our heads begin to clear. And as we watch him mark out the steps in front of us as our guide and we step by step follow him, we'll feel strength return to our legs as we climb that mountain with God. And God is saying, you will be most alive when you move with me. And so you go into a space where you can worship, where you can pray, where you can gaze into heaven, where you can deeply study and know the words of God, know my character, know me through this word. And then when I start to move, you move into this rhythm of worshiping, gazing, and then moving with me. That that's the Christian call, that we're meant to move with God as he moves on this earth. And Jesus will say, and you're going to get to be my witnesses. And we don't have time to go into what that word means, but a witness is basically somebody who tells a story or somebody whose story counts for a bigger story, that it points to reality beyond our simple lives, that a witness is someone whose story tells a bigger story. And Jesus is saying that if you sync up with me, and you receive the power of my Holy Spirit and you move with me, you'll become a witness that your story now counts for a bigger story. And you're going to do that in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And it's so fascinating because for so many of us, when we think about mission or we think about moving with God, we think about that last one about the ends of the earth. 
some uncharted place with some unknown people group somewhere out on the edge of the world. And we should think about that. Jesus mentioned that. But before he does, he mentions three other places that are within a hundred mile radius of where the disciples were standing. He says, first, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Where was Jerusalem for the original audience, for the disciples? It was the ground underneath their feet. He says, you're going to be my witnesses right where you are. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, which was the surrounding region. And then he says, and this is interesting, you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria. And if you know anything about Jewish culture and context and history, you know that the Samarians, the Samaritans, were the political and religious rivals of the Jews. And so he says, I want you to be witnesses of my incredible love and redeeming power to them. I want you to not just go to your friends, but to your enemies. And so what will that look like for you to look at your life and say, God has called me to be a witness to the people who are around me immediately. And you look at the ground underneath your feet. And that may be UConn's campus. That may be your workplace. That may be Zoom meetings. And you say, God, how can you use me as a witness to move into this world and to just be present in society, living lives of love and service that tell a story of who you are and who you're meant to be? And so to close, um, I'm at a season of life currently where all of my friends are getting married. In the fall of last year, um, before everything shut down and into the winter, uh, I think I went to seven weddings in about five months. And people are just dropping like flies all over the place, including my older sister and my younger brother. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing all these people who are getting married all over the place. And I'm seeing um, my friends who were, uh, I was friends with, and I'm looking at these guys who are proposing to these women who are saying yes. And, uh, and I'm left asking the question, how did these guys pull that off? Like, how did they convince a loving, smart, capable woman to say yes to spending the rest of their lives with them? Because I knew these guys in college, right? <laughs> how did they convince them to say yes? Like, how did they convince them to say yes to the proposal of come run with me, come spend your life with me forever? And particularly my younger brother, Sam, uh, because it wasn't all that long ago that it was that Sam was sitting in the backyard. And I remember my mom walking into the backyard and, um, and he's sitting in the backyard and he's eating, literally trying to gnaw on rocks, like hard rocks. And my mom is like, what are you doing? And, uh, and he just looked at her and he said, so I can have hard muscles, right? <laughs> like, it wasn't that long ago that that happened. I remember it. And that guy convinced a beautiful, smart, capable, intelligent woman to say yes to walking with him forever. How did they do that? How did they do that? I think two things. Number one, they showed them. And number two, they told them. It was a life of show and tell that these women looked at these men and they saw, number one, integrity, that they were who they said that they were and that they showed up when they said that they would show up. Uh, and number two, they showed a propensity to move towards them in love. And not just in their best moments, not just when they were looking best or feeling best, but in their worst moments, when they were hurting or when there was difficulty, these men would move towards these women in love. And then at the appropriate time, they opened their mouth and they communicated how they felt about them. And so for the young single guys in the room, write that down. That's gonna be important for you someday. You can't just show it. You have to use your words and speak it. I love you. And these women said, yes.
And so how do you convince somebody like Maureen, who was trafficked from the time she was a teenager, that God loves her? That by the time she turned 18, she was arrested for prostitution, even though it was never a choice. Spent time in jail. How do you convince somebody like that, that there's a God in heaven who loves her? Well, I think number one, you move towards her. And so it was a tremendous honor at Amira to get to move towards Maureen when she was locked up, feeling helpless, feeling hopeless. She was a victim turned criminal. And she voiced this fear that one day when the prison doors swung open that she would see her trafficker's face. And because we were close to her, because we had moved towards her in love, we anticipated that moment. And so instead of her trafficker's face, what she saw were the bright, hope-filled, Christ-filled faces of Amira's staff ready to welcome her into our home. And she began her journey of recovery, of health, of healing, of life. And in August of last year, she stood on the shores of a beach in the North Shore of Massachusetts, and she put her faith in Jesus. And she was baptized with her church and Amira's staff by her side. Because for her, as she was moved towards in love, as these reconciliations were happening all around her, from her to her daughter, from her to her community, from her to society, that as these horizontal reconciliations were happening around her, it wasn't long before that turned vertical and she was reconciled again to her maker because the name Amira means princess or female leader. And it's this idea that every woman that comes to us, our prayer would be that they would go from seeing themselves as victim or enslaved to dignified and to and as daughter of King Jesus forever. And that was her story. And that's so incredible. And what I love about that is now Marine's story tells a bigger story. And the women at Amira's house each night light a candle and pray this prayer. Lord, help us to remember the women that are still out there. May they find hope and courage in this light to one day join us at our table. And I love that because that's the Christian story. That as we live and as our lights shine, that the world around us sees it, they are filled with hope and they are filled with courage to join us at the table of God. And so may that be true of us. Our hope is that we would recognize that the goal of Christianity is to one, be faithful to the message, a steady presence in a culture of shifting sand, that we would be faithful to the gospel of Jesus and at the appropriate time, open our mouths and speak it. And that when we speak it, when we proclaim the gospel, it would be like seeing a ring at a proposal. But the proposed has already experienced his love. Now all that's left for us to do is to accept the invitation. And so that's my hope. I believe that's the message of the book of Acts, that as disciples of Jesus, we were meant to gaze into heaven, to be full of his wonder, and then to move with God and to come alive in that pursuit. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the reality that you are on the move, that you see the chaos, the brokenness, the hurting of this world, and you are not aloof, you are not far off, but God, that you are in the wilderness and you are riding in. And so for those of us that know you in this moment, God, I just pray that we to move with you as you move in this world. God, convict us of where we need to shift from knowing things about you to really knowing you. 
God, I pray that we would move with you as you move in this world. I pray that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit through light and salt. God, that we would recognize that there are people's lives have been marginalized and oppressed and that we would move towards them in love. And so, Lord, we do ask and pray that as you are feeling the weight of racial injustice, that this day we would through your people who would move towards them in love. God, we pray for the 40 million people around the world and the 500,000 women in the United States who are being trafficked. And we pray, God, that you would move towards them and that we would move with you. And that this world would see a radical transformation that darkness would turn to light, that despair would turn to hope, that brokenness would turn to healing, and that there would only be one explanation. And it's that the people of God moved with God, and this world was never the same. So Lord, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your goodness. Love to you. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Mike. That was awesome.